The Guardian. What couldn't you live without each day? For lots of people, there's one clear answer. Coffee. According to the British Coffee Association, humanity gets through over 700 billion cups every year. That requires an awful lot of beans. And the plants that produce them are increasingly at risk from the impacts of the climate crisis. Insects and disease-causing fungi like coffee rust, extreme weather events and rapidly climbing temperatures. Botanists and biologists have been searching for a climate-resistant alternative to the favoured species among coffee connoisseurs, Arabica. Recently, they found a glimmer of hope. Not only did we need a climate-resilient coffee, we needed something that tasted really good. Stenophylla has those two key attributes that, that we've been looking for. Yet, it's not just our coffee that's at risk. Crops around the world are facing the same threats. So how do you hunt down species that could withstand the likely impacts of the climate crisis? Can we save our favourite foods and critically, the livelihoods of the people that farm them? Crop breeding is not a fast process. It takes several years from the discovery research to identify a genetic resource. So I would say we are in a race against time. I'm Patrick Greenfield and you're listening to Science Weekly. In the early 1900s, there were reports of a delicious tasting coffee, indigenous to Guinea, Sierra Leone and Ivory Coast, known as stenophylla. Growing in these regions, stenophylla thrives in high temperatures. And so, Aaron Davis, head of coffee research at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, and his colleagues have recently been trying to track it down, after its last sighting in the wild in 1941, hoping that it can one day become a safety net for our favourite species at present, Arabica. Arabica coffee is our favourite coffee. It's the one we drink at home if we're buying coffee from the supermarket or it's the one we're drinking at our favourite high street chain or or boutique coffee shop. And it's favoured over all other coffee species because it has the taste that we we want from coffee. It's got a fantastic flavour. There are another 123 coffee species and of those we only use one other in commercial production and that's robusta now robusta is a great plant for the farmer because it's disease resistant etc but it doesn't taste as good as arabica and it's got more caffeine and generally it's used in instant coffees or in blends particularly for espressos now robusta coffee as i say doesn't have those lovely um flavours and flavour notes that we expect in Arabica. And for that reason, farmers uh, get paid less. It's, it's currently around half the purchase price of Arabica. What risks are coffee plants facing from the climate crisis, particularly Arabica? What, what are the problems that the climate crisis is, are creating? Arabica coffee is essentially a cool tropical plant. Yes, it grows in the tropics, but its natural home is the highlands of Ethiopia and South Sudan, and there it enjoys a a cool tropical climate. So the temperature never gets particularly hot. There's plenty of water. That's great uh, in in an ideal world, but under accelerated climate change, of course, um, as temperatures increase and the weather becomes more variable, uh, it's really suffering in some places. Is coffee particularly sensitive to changes in the climate? 
At face value, no, it's quite a tough plant. It's a tree, so it has to survive, you know, season after season after season. Um, with coffee, uh, one of the things you, you really see is that each species has a very specific niche uh, or a sort of very specific range of climatic conditions under which it can grow, flower and crop. And in a lot of species, that's, that's quite narrow. But in terms of long-term climate change, you know, when we're talking about one degree plus uh, two degrees, then for those farmers that aren't in the optimum growing zone, that's where you start to see the problems. And indeed, that's what we're seeing in many parts of the world, particularly at lower elevation, where it's perhaps a little bit too dry already and a little bit too hot. That's where we're seeing the impact. Even over the last couple of decades, we've seen Arabica lose ground to Robusta because Robusta occurs in warmer conditions. And that might be some sort of early indication, if you if you like. Uh, it's not going to go extinct tomorrow or uh, over the next few years. But, you know, as we approach the middle of the century, we need some really serious options. Many farmers are already feeling the changes that have happened. And it was really enlightening moving around Ethiopia uh, a few years ago and to listen to farmers talk about the impacts of climate change and not on a, a year by year but on a generation time basis and you know they were saying that their fathers mothers were able to get a really good crop every two or three years their parents parents were getting a great crop every other year or every year and so you know it's a long-term thing it, it really tallies very well with with, with all the modelling and all the research that's um, been undertaken. So Aaron, you've been looking at other coffee species. Tell us about Stenophila. My speciality is wild coffee species. And um, one of the things that myself and my colleagues here at Kew and also across Africa have been looking for is a coffee that firstly can withstand higher temperatures and lower rainfall, but also still provides the consumer with the experience they expect from coffee. And if you look across the 124 coffee species, only Arabica tastes delicious. And that was the other critical requirement. Not only did we need a climate resilient coffee, we needed something that tasted really good. Stenophila has those two key attributes that, that we've been looking for. Tracking down Stenophila was a long-term process, that's for sure. I first came across this oh many many years ago whilst going through the specimens at Kew and it, you know even 10 years ago top flight baristas were asking me wow you know we want to we want some stenophila we heard it's fantastic and we just couldn't get any samples and then you know there's been a lot of um, problems in in Sierra Leone uh, for example more recently with Ebola uh, so access has, has been difficult and indeed a colleague of mine who's co-authored a paper uh Professor Jeremy Hagar was in Sierra Leone during the Ebola crisis working on a coffee development project and we had a discussion one day basically could could he try and find Stenophila coffee in Sierra Leone of course we're working with in-country collaborators and partners in Sierra Leone and one of those was Daniel Samu a Sierra Leonean development specialist and he said look let's make a poster let's make a wanted poster I'll take it around coffee farms all over the place and see if anybody has a plantation still. We went to a few farms and Stenophila wasn't there. 
fortunately we ha we received a small research grant to go and actually look in the wild that was our plan b we went back to the last place it was seen in sierra leone at least in 1954 and after some hours checking through the forest we found one plant of stenophylla coffee uh, which is great in, in, in many ways, but we that's not really uh, good enough. Uh, so Daniel suggested that we visit his hometown where there was a, a forest similar to the one we were in. And that's what we did. And again, we went trekking through the forest. And when we got to the right elevation, we found a, a nice healthy population of Stenophylla, which is where the first cupping sample came from. We took a coffee bean from one of the um, collections here at Kew, which was collected in 1873. We extracted the DNA, and then we extracted the DNA of plants that we had just found and did a sort of DNA fingerprinting to be absolutely certain we had stenophylla coffee. Now, before the big reveal for stenophylla, can you give us a sense of what some of the other wild coffee species taste like? We've been trying to taste as many wild coffee species as possible. And what we've found is that they're either barely adequate or quite disgusting. I'm not a coffee sensory expert. So we take them to people that know how to taste uh, coffee or it's, it's called in the trade, it's called cupping. It's been interesting to see some of the flavor notes that have, that have come back. <laughs> <laughs> in those tastings and I, I'll just go over a few including sausage roll, fake lavender, I'm not sure what that is, urinal, that's another one, phenol, herbal, eucalyptus, which are not the sort of things <laughs> you expect in a cup of coffee. And now for the crucial question, you tested out stenophylla on some judges I believe, what did they make of it? Yes, yeah, so this was the acid test, really. As I've said, we've got lots of coffee species that can grow in warm and dry conditions. They don't taste so good. What does stenophylla taste like? From that initial tasting, um, we were able to ascertain that those historic records of, of great taste were confirmed. The other thing we were able to find, which was really remarkable, is that it actually tastes like Arabica coffee. So Arabica is a plant of cool tropical forests in East Africa, while Stenophylla is found in hot tropical forests in West Africa. They're two different species of coffee. Why do they produce such similar tastes? That really is an intriguing question and something we're, we're looking at now, or colleagues of mine uh, here at Kew in the Jodrell Laboratory are looking at now, is like, are these two species producing the same chemicals and the same quantities? We're trying to go some way to unlocking the question, what constitutes a great cup of coffee? And, and, and Stenafella might help us with that uh, question. And what are some of the unanswered questions about Stenafella? Can it be industrialised? Can, can we produce it in the same way as Arabica? We know that it was grown in West Africa at commercial scale over 100 years ago. That's, that's a really good starting point going forward you know we need to assess its agronomic potential we know it has market potential because of the taste and we see two main pathways if you like one is to develop this as a crop in west africa 
countries like Sierra Leone, that's their biological property, their biological heritage, and they should you know, develop it for themselves. You know, longer term, the idea is that Stenophylla, because it has so many useful features, that it's going to be a really key resource for breeding the next generation of commodity level coffees. Aaron, with that in mind, is gene editing a possibility if if you can't actually industrialise uh, Stenophylla? Gene editing has a lot of advantages. You know, the, the difference here is that we're the, the control of climate resilience and the basis of flavour is not connected to a couple of genes. We're talking about a what we call a polygene system. So it's numerous genes. And we don't understand the genomic basis of climate tolerance or, or flavour. So I think we're a long way off, if ever, from doing something like that. We need those living plant resources for plant breeding. And if Stenophylla doesn't work out, what other options do we have? I mean, are we going to be stuck with the sausage roll option? (laughs) I I don't think there are many options, to be honest. And, you know, we've found a sort of chink of hope, I I think, for for sort of trying to do something about long-term sustainability. But, you know, it's absolutely clear that none of this has any significance or will be of no value unless we deal with the root causes of climate change we have to keep warming under two degrees otherwise you know coffee's the last thing we'll be we'll be worrying about keeping under two degrees will be a challenge even if all countries kept to the paris agreement for reducing emissions there would only be a five percent chance of staying below that level of warming According to Climate Action Tracker, with the world's current policies, we're on course for between 2.7 and 3.1 degrees of global average temperature rises. So what should we be worrying about? Alongside coffee, what other climate-resistant crops should we be on the hunt for? Well, pretty much any plant can be affected by climate change, depending on how it's adapted. Uh, So I think it's fair to say that most crops are at risk, either from drought or heat or a combination of both, or new diseases and pests. That is Matthew Reynolds from the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Centre in Mexico. Matthew is looking at another important part of our other morning staples, toast and cereal, by investigating the climate resilience of wheat. Now, Matthew, we've been hearing about how coffee is affected by the climate crisis and the risks around that. In terms of actually making crops resistant to to the changes that that will come um, in the climate, how are you doing that? How how does one go about um, creating new varieties and even species that are climate resilient? What you do is you have to, in a breeding context, you have to find good sources of those traits that allow you to adapt better to a harsher climate. So, for example, a better root system, a root system that can access subsoil water, or can match the demand from the atmosphere when it's very, the air is very hot and dry. We look for traits like that. Heat-tolerant photosynthesis would be another one. And we combine them through crossing. And then the, the task is to select out of the many progeny that can come from across those lines that have retained the best combination of traits. And that we, we use uh, phenomics. And once we have selected those lines, we subject them to international testing. Matthew, how do you go about doing your work? How do you actually look for, for, for new crops, new species, new varieties? 
if we're looking for new traits or new sources of traits to, to produce climate-resilient cultivars, we're likely to go to the collections of species and cultivars that have been squirreled away over decades. And they're stored in, in vast cold rooms so that the seed can last 100 years or more. So we, we take a few grams of those seeds and we grow them out in the field in small plots. And we use technologies like drones with sensors attached to measure certain characteristics. For example, one of the characteristics that is very typically associated with heat and drought adaptation is a cooler leaf surface. So we measure the temperature of plants and we always find that the ones that are cooler are the ones that are better adapted and will eventually um, be used as parents uh, and result in better yields. And that cooling is associated with, uh, our research has shown that it's associated with a better or deeper root system. So they're accessing water. It's kind of like air conditioning for plants. So they can maintain themselves much cooler than the ambient temperature. And there are other characteristics that we can measure with simple cameras attached to drones, like uh, ground cover, which is a very another very important characteristic for example, under drought, and so on. We can even have rough estimates of, of yield. So that technology uh, has enabled us to unlock a lot of the genetic diversity that has existed in, in so-called gene banks or collections of genetic resources over many decades since the start of the Green Revolution. When you're searching for climate-resistant crops by finding desirable traits that already exist and cross-breeding those plants, what kind of timescales are we talking about? Crop breeding is not a fast process. It takes several years from the discovery research to identify a genetic resource, let's say a, a, a parent that you can use, to then selecting from the progeny of that cross the right cultivars for a particular farming region. So we're talking about anything from 5 to 15 years, typically. In the wild species, the crossing takes longer to retrieve uh, the traits in the agronomic background that you want. And so you can also get some unexpected effects when you make fairly wide crosses like that. And I'm not talking about transgenic technology. I'm simply talking about con relatively conventional approaches in in hybridization and selection. And do you feel like you're in a race against time? Yes, certainly. One sees the weather every year, in especially in the last 10 years or so, seems to be a little bit, quite a lot different. We're seeing temperature records broken every year now in different countries and sometimes global records quite often now. So I would say we are in a race against time. Is, is there a timeline you're, you're working against? When should we expect to see big effects from the climate crisis on food supplies? That's a difficult question to answer because, as I say, it depends on, on many unpredictable factors. So we have global weather patterns, but we also have the global spread of diseases and pests like insects. Uh, insects love warm climates. It's sometimes harder to work when you don't have a precise deadline. I think we all can relate to that. But I think we should be erring on the side of caution because it relates to your earlier question about how long does it take to breed a new crop variety. It takes years at, 
several years. And so if we wait for the perfect storm to happen, we're going to be a little bit behind. Today, I've had a couple of coffees. I might have a bit of chocolate later. I don't know, I might have some pasta tonight. Should I expect that to change? Is, is that a lifestyle that I won't be able to lead anymore because these, these crops will be so affected by the climate crisis? You'll probably be okay. It's just that you may be paying a lot more for your coffee or your chocolate. Certainly less options. You may have to store things. They're available less often. I doubt that anything will disappear in our lifetimes. But their relative availability is what could change, certainly, yes. And we are the privileged ones. There are people in, in less developed countries who could quite likely be affected at a much more fundamental level in terms of obtaining enough of the staple foods like uh, rice and weed and maize and so on, sorghum. So it depends where you are as well and who you are. Looking to solutions, what kind of challenges do we need to overcome to stop these terrible things from happening when it comes to our food supply? One of the interesting scenarios is that we tend to work often duplicating the work of other labs. So there are every, every country has its national crop improvement program. You see duplication in basic research into plants. I'm of the belief, and many of my colleagues, that what we need is a more coordinated effort. The public sector needs to collaborate in a much more effective way. We need it to be more all-embracing all of, of all of the crops that are under threat. And, and that was your first question. Is, is coffee an exception? And no, the answer is no. That, or any crop could be affected by uh, heat or drought or a new disease or pest. So... Coordination is one of perhaps the key element to make sure that we're using our resources efficiently. Matthew, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you to both Aaron Davis and Matthew Reynolds. If you'd like to read more about Aaron's study on Stenophila coffee, you can find a link to the paper on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I'd also recommend having a look at The Guardian's Age of Extinction series, where my colleagues and I are busy reporting on biodiversity loss and ways we can tackle it. And that's it for today. We'll see you back here on Thursday. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.